0: Good morning. Matthew chapter 13, verse 31 to 33. He put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants. and." becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. The word of the Lord. In the early 90s, there was one of the worst Programs of ethnic cleansing in our modern world. Uh, throughout Bosnia and Croatia, Serbian soldiers called Chetniks were herding millions of people into concentration camps, killing them, raping the women, burning down their churches, and destroying their cities. In the winter of 1993, a Croatian theologian named Miroslav Volf gave a lecture in which he argued that we should embrace our enemies because God in Christ embraced us. And then after the lecture, another very famous theologian named Jürgen Moltmann stood up and he asked Miroslav Volf, but can you embrace a Chetnik? In other words, he was saying, can you embrace someone who's murdered your family raped your wife and daughter and burned down your home? Miroslav Volf says that he really wrestled with that question. What he wanted to say was, no, I cannot. But as a follower of Christ, I should be able to. Even though he had just given a whole theological lecture on it, emotionally, he was not there. And he actually lets us into his thought process by saying this. He says, can I embrace a Chetnik the ultimate other, so to speak, the evil other? What would justify the embrace? Where would I draw the strength for it? What would it do to my identity as a human being and as a Croat? You know, those are brutally honest questions, and they're ongoing questions. One of the most constant and inescapable problems in our world from ancient times right to this very moment is what we could call the problem of the other, the evil other. And I'm sure you all know what I'm talking about. To other someone is not just to see them as distinct or different from you, but as inferior and oftentimes as less than human. People other you, and when they do, they become an other to you can we embrace the other? Should we embrace the other? A lot of people today are adamant that there are some people on the other side, whatever the other side is to you, people who are so evil, so wicked, so lost, that it is morally wrong um, to even entertain the idea of embracing them, much less actually doing it. What do we do about that? You know, for instance, I, we have another election year coming up, and I don't know about you, but I am not looking forward to it. <laughs> Every time we think that the division and polarization in this world couldn't possibly get any worse, it does. How do we respond to that? What, can we embrace the other? Should we embrace the other? We're in a series in which we're looking at Jesus' parables of the kingdom of God. Uh, In these two very short parables we just read, on the surface they sound very simple, but there is a mine, a deep mine of riches in here that take us to the very heart of this question of the other. Let's take a look and see Jesus is showing us three things here. Jesus shows us God's vision for the world. He shows us our problem with the other. But lastly, Jesus shows us a hidden source of life. We're going to see God's vision for the world, our problem with the other, and a hidden source of life, okay? So first, Jesus shows us God's vision for the world. Right at the beginning, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. Now, if you were with us in the first week of this series, we learned that when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, this would have been full of meaning For his first century Jewish audience. And that if we don't understand the kingdom of God in its Jewish context. Then we will not understand what Jesus is telling us here. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. He's tapping into the main storyline of the Bible. In the beginning God created this world to be a place of goodness. Wholeness, beauty and perfection. He put the first humans in a garden. The garden was the place of intimacy and connection with God. But the first humans rebelled against God. They wanted to be the ones who decide what's good and evil. They didn't want God to be king. They wanted to be kings and queens of their own lives. And by the way, so do we. And as a result, everything started falling apart. The whole fabric of creation began to unravel so that now we have war, poverty, violence, oppression, Racism, injustice, the other. What does God do about the mess this world is in? Well, Genesis 12, one of the most pivotal chapters in the Bible. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham to be the father of the nation of Israel. He says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. But why? What God tells Abraham next changes history. He says, All peoples, Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples, all nations on earth will be blessed through you. Do you realize what this is? This is a dramatic rescue operation. That God's vision for the world is a universal vision of blessing for all the nations of the world. And you think about that and you realize our culture makes a really big deal about this, don't we? We put tremendous value on things like multiculturalism and tolerance. Uh, We call it diversity, equity, and inclusion. We make a really big deal about this, but that vision comes from the Bible because that's what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is a multi-ethnic, multicultural story of rescue and renewal for the whole world. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, that's what he's talking about. And we see that here in this parable. Some of you might be thinking, where do we see that? Well, take a look at what Jesus says about this mustard seed. He says, it is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make its nests and nests its branches. Now, Jesus is pointing back to many Hebrew prophets in other places in the Bible. For instance, in Daniel chapter 4, it talks about a universal world tree and says the tree grew large and strong and its top touched the sky under it the wild animals found shelter and the birds lived in its branches do you see the similarities with what Jesus is saying or in Ezekiel 17 it talks about another universal world tree and it says birds of every kind will nest in it they will find shelter in its shade in the shade of its branches now those are just a couple of examples we could point to many others but here's the point God's vision for the world is a vision of universal blessing for all the nations of the world. Now, here's why this is so important for us. Um, In our culture, it's very easy to think, in fact, many people do think that the Bible sets up an us versus them mentality. And that if you become a Christian, then that's automatically going to turn you into a bigot. And somebody who feels superior to others and starts oppressing and othering them because now we start to think, ooh, I'm one of God's chosen people. I'm not like those sinners over there. I'm better than them. It's easy to understand why people think that because a lot of Christians today act like that. And we'll talk more about that in just a little bit. But for now, do you see how Jesus is showing us the exact opposite of that? That the kingdom of God is the exact opposite of that attitude. The kingdom of God is a multi-ethnic, multicultural story of rescue and renewal for the whole world. And by the way, it is completely unlike anything you will find in any other religious text in the world. And listen, don't take my word for it. Chaturvedi Badranaugh was an Indian scholar of world religion. And a devoted Hindu. He was also very good friends with a British missionary named Leslie Newbegin, and, and, and they were such good friends that they would talk together about the Bible all the time. One time, here's what Chatravedi Badranath said to Leslie Newbegin about the Bible. He said, the Bible is not a book of religion. We have plenty of books of religion in India. We don't need any more. Now, by books of religion, he means uh, books. Or texts that have instructions or guidance on how to connect to God. Here are the things you must do. Here are the ethical principles you must observe. Here are the spiritual disciplines that you must practice. Traditional religion is all about what you must do to connect with God. And Chaturvedi Badranath is saying that's not what the Bible is. He went on to tell Leslie Newbegin, I find in your Bible a unique interpretation of universal history. The history of the whole creation and the history of the, the whole human race. Now that is a remarkable statement coming from someone who knows what he's talking about. And understand, he didn't believe in Christianity. But he understood what it's claiming, that the Bible, that that the gospel is not a statement of principles or disciplines that you must practice in order to connect to God. The Bible is a story. The kingdom of God is a multi-ethnic, multicultural story of rescue and renewal for all of the world, all the peoples, not just one people, but all the peoples of the earth. And by the way, if you look at history, that's exactly what you see. You know, the places in the world where Christianity is growing the fastest are places like China, South America, Sub-Saharan Africa. Christianity is the only religion in the history of the world that has had a truly global impact. And by the way, that doesn't mean that Christianity is true, but it does mean that Christianity is living up to the promise that Jesus shows us here. It truly has become a tree in which all the birds of the air can come and make a nest and its branches. And that leads to our next thing that Jesus shows us. Not only does Jesus show us God's vision for the world, it's a universal vision of blessing for all the nations. Second, Jesus shows us our problem with the other. You know, as we've just seen, Jesus is urging his Jewish audience to remember God's vision, that it's a universal vision of blessing for all the nations. But there was a big challenge with that. What was that? Well, at this point in their history, Israel was living under brutal, and and I mean brutal, oppression from the Roman Empire. When they thought about the kingdom of God, they were thinking about a political king who was going to come and lead a military assault on Rome. They were not thinking about a universal uh, vision of blessing for all the nations of the world. They were thinking about a political nationalist vision for Israel only. Does that sound familiar? Jesus is reminding them of the original vision, but they didn't like it. For instance, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth, and he starts proclaiming the kingdom of God. He says, the kingdom is here because I am here. He's proclaiming liberty for the captive and the oppressed, and people got really excited because that's what they were waiting for. But then Jesus said, you know, they were thinking military victory over Rome. They were thinking that all the Gentiles and all the nations of the world that oppressed them and othered them, that they were going to be crushed and destroyed. But Jesus says, no, the liberty of the kingdom is is not just for you. It's also for them. It's every bit as much for them as it is for you. And if you don't welcome them, then you might find yourself outside the kingdom. His hometown got so angry that they tried to throw him off a cliff. Talk about getting canceled. Friends, Jesus is giving us a radically different vision of the kingdom here. He's reminding them of the original vision that the kingdom of God is a multi-ethnic, multicultural story of rescue and renewal for the whole world. The problem is that his people didn't want that. His own Jewish people didn't want that. They were looking for a military victory. They had been othered. And as a response, they othered the other's who had othered them. Does that make sense? You think about it, you realize our world hasn't really changed very much, has it? We like to think that we are so modern, so enlightened, so progressive, but we're really just the same. In fact, in all my decades on this planet, I have never in my lifetime seen a, a time in our society when we have been as divided and polarized as we are now. And even if you're in your 20s, you've seen the same thing, haven't you? Over the last 10 years, something's changed. There is more division, polarization, and hatred in our society than any of us have ever seen in our lifetime. And it's not, you know, just on the right, it's also on the left. As a culture, we are trained to believe that that people who disagree with you are not just wrong, they don't just believe evil things, they are evil. And we, and we are trained to believe that we must oppose them, and if necessary, crush and destroy them, because if we don't, they will crush and destroy us. Friends, this is the problem of the other. How do we respond to that? What do we do about it? Well, there are different responses to otherness, and one of them is the way we just described. We could call this the way of being estranged from the other, and this is the way of our modern world, but there are other responses for instance, I often talk to people who propose an alternative. You know, um, more and more people are opting out of traditional religion and exploring other spiritual paths. And especially over the last 30 or 40 years, more and more people are exploring Eastern forms of spirituality. Uh, Eastern spirituality has a tendency to say that, um, that the way we deal with the other is that we should um, escape otherness. And here's what I mean. Eastern traditions like Buddhism... Uh, have a tendency to say that our experience of being a unique individual self distinct from other unique individual selves, that that experience is an illusion, or we could say uh, the lack of an evolved consciousness. In other words, if we could just raise our consciousness, we would realize that our experience of being a unique self is really, it's, it's like a wave that arises out of the ocean and then falls back into the ocean. Because everything is one. God is everything, and everything is God. We're all one. That means that there really is no such thing as a unique self, and therefore, there is no other. And if we could just raise our consciousness, we would realize that, and we would be at peace. We would have escaped otherness. Now, that is a very ancient and very appealing option. It's appealing to me. It's also worth taking very seriously because it is so ancient. But there is some challenges with that. And one of them is this. If this is true, then it really no longer makes any sense to talk about individual human rights or evil or injustice. Because those things are an illusion also. So here's where we're at. If there is no God and this world is all there is, then being estranged from others That makes a lot of sense because essentially this world is a competitive place where you got to protect yourself and and be estranged from others in order to protect yourself and pass along your genetic code. Or um, if everything is God and God is everything, then the way of escaping otherness, that does make sense because everything is one. There is no unique self and therefore there is no other. But Jesus offers us a different way, not a way of being estranged from others, and not a way of escaping otherness, but a way of embracing others. For instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus very famously said, love your enemies. Notice Jesus does not deny the existence of unique selves. Enemies are unique selves. Notice he also does not deny the reality of oppression and injustice. He calls those unique selves enemies. Jesus is saying that, however, that instead of protecting ourselves, or instead of denying that we are unique selves, Jesus says that we are to sacrifice or give away ourselves for the sake of others. Because in the Bible, and only in the Bible, um, every human being is a unique individual created in the image of God. And Jesus says, therefore, we should love them and sacrifice ourselves for them. Because that's what love is, giving yourself away For the sake of an other self. Now this is challenging, isn't it? Especially here in America. Where many Christians, especially white evangelicals, are very anxious. Uh, There's this narrative that says our religion, our values, our whole way of life is under siege. And we have to fight back. And again, this attitude is both on the right and on the left. Our culture has trained us in in an us versus them mentality. Our culture has trained us to think that that there are people out there who are so wrong, so wicked, that we are morally obligated to oppose them and, and crush them and destroy them if necessary. Because if we don't, they're going to crush and destroy us. But I want to encourage you, if you are a Christian, that, listen, Christianity and the gospel has always flourished the most where it has had least protection where it has been most in danger. But for instance, um, I read a sociological study, peer-reviewed study just a couple of years ago. You know where the 10 countries in the world where Christianity is growing the fastest, you know where they are? They're in Africa, all 10 of them. And the, the ones that are bolded, all, seven of these 10 countries where Christianity is growing fastest are places where there is little or no institutional support for Christianity. There's no state support, no protection. It's incredibly dangerous to be a Christian in these places. And yet, Christianity is exploding there. Why? Because there are Christians there who are willing to sacrifice themselves for the sake of the other. They are modeling the kingdom of God, not by being estranged from others, not by escaping otherness, but by embracing the other. How can they do that? And what's more, how can we do that? Well, that leads to our last point. Jesus has showed us God's vision for the world, a universal vision, a blessing for all the nations. He showed us our problem with the other, that we um, are estranged from others, or we might seek to escape others, but it's very difficult for us to, um, to embrace the idea of embracing others. But lastly, Jesus shows us a hidden source of life, because here's the real challenge: we live in a country where Christianity still is by far the dominant religion, and yet uh, so many Christians today are so captive to politics and ideology, both on the right and on the left, that um, here in America, Christianity is not just seen as irrelevant; it's seen as harmful and oppressive. But remember the vision that Jesus is showing us here: the kingdom of God. Is a multi ethnic, multicultural story of rescue and renewal for the whole world. And, and that means that if you're a follower of Jesus, that what we need to do is, is, on the one hand, resist political idolatry and point people towards the kingdom. And in order to do that, we need to engage in what I would call a double witness. What does that mean, double witness? Double witness means, on the one hand, uh, Christians in the modern West need to bear witness to the kingdom, to people who uh, are skeptical about God, the Bible, and Jesus. That's one very necessary form of witness. But we also need to bear witness to people who do believe in Jesus, but are more captive to politics than they are to Jesus. And by the way, that's exactly what Jesus was doing, wasn't he? It double witness, both to his Jewish um, neighbors who are more captive to a political vision of the kingdom, but also to outsiders, people who didn't know about the God of Israel. Jesus was doing double witness. We need to do the same thing. In fact, one of the most important ways we can bear witness to the kingdom today is on the one hand to find ways of resisting political and ideological idolatry, but also becoming a more loving, non-anxious presence in the world that is able to embrace others and even sacrifice ourselves for others how are we going to do that and especially how are we going to do that in a way that doesn't fall into yet another form of superiority that others others in other words how can we do that without saying haha we're the ones who really get it we're going to be the ones who embrace others we're going to be the sacrificial noble and virtuous ones not like those idiots over there do you see the challenge In in other words, the question is, how can we embrace others without feeling superior to them? Well, think about it. Why do we other others in the first place? The reason is because um, we root our identities in something that can be threatened. And when your identity is threatened, we fight back. The only way that we can really embrace others without feeling superior to them is to find an identity that can never be threatened. And that's exactly what Jesus offers us in this last parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. The, the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying, is not something sudden and dramatic and easy to see like a political revolution. It's hidden. The kingdom of God is really more like a spiritual revolution. You could be looking right at it and never see it because it's not what we expect and definitely not what we want. It's hidden. But it's hiddenness is the key to how it changes us. Because think about it. Jesus was a, an absolutely unexpected Messiah, wasn't he? Everybody in his day was looking for a king, a Messiah, who was going to come and overthrow the Roman Empire. Viva la revolution. And when he was nailed to the cross... Nobody looking at him, not even his closest followers, would have looked at Jesus hanging there and said, Aha! Hail Israel's Messiah! Here at last is how God is saving the world. No! Nobody in the ancient world was expecting a crucified Messiah. A crucified Messiah, by definition, was a failed Messiah. And by the way, that's one of the big reasons that we can be confident that the Gospels are telling us the truth about Jesus because no one in the ancient world would have made this up. Friends, the salvation that Jesus offers us on the cross is a hidden salvation. It's not what any of us would expect because the cross is not a place of victory and power and honor. The cross is a place of death, weakness, and shame. And we don't like that. We don't want that. But it is precisely because of that that the cross is able to enter into your weakness, your death, your shame, and to heal you and to set you free. You know, in John chapter 11, Jesus walked up to the tomb of his friend Lazarus who had been dead for four days. Jesus was about to raise Lazarus from the dead and he said, take away the stone. But Martha... Lazarus' sister said, Lord Jesus, don't take away the stone. Do you remember why? There'll be a stink in there. Have you ever smelled decomposing flesh? I'm sorry to bring up such an unpleasant topic. But if you've ever been to an open casket funeral, you know the embalmers do a really good job with that. But if you get close to the body, you smell it, don't you? Every single one of us has tombs in our lives that are filled with the stench of horrible things that have been done to us and horrible things that we have done to others. We have othered others. I have, haven't you? We all have tombs in our lives that are filled with things like fear, pain, grief, loss, remorse, guilt, and underneath all of it, deep, deep shame. And, and as a result of that, every single one of us is like Martha. Lord, don't take away the stone. There will be a stink in there. What do we do with that stuff? We keep it hidden, don't we? I do. We don't want anyone to see it or smell it. We want to keep that stuff hidden. But the more we keep it hidden, the more it poisons us. But we, we, the last thing we would expect would be that the way, the true way we could find healing and freedom in this world would be to roll away the stone over all that stuff and let Jesus into our tomb. But that's exactly what the cross does for us. The only way Jesus could bring us out of the hiddenness of our own tombs was by going into the hiddenness of his own tomb. Friends, we took God's garden and we turned it into a tomb. But Jesus, through his death and physical resurrection, he takes our tombs, our dark, stinky tombs, and he turns them into a lush, viridescent garden. When you let the the hiddenness of the cross, his death, his weakness, his shame, when you let that into your life, it sucks all the poison out of your fear, your death, weakness, and shame. And by the way, that doesn't happen overnight. You know, when Lazarus came out of the tomb... He still had those stinky grave clothes on him. He still had that death stench clinging to his skin, but he was free. Friends, we live in a culture that trains us to think that that we have to perform our magnificence before a watching world that can never be any stink in our lives. Our identities depend on it. But, But the more we do that, you know, when we other people, or when other people other you, you know what we're doing? We're protecting our identities. We're hiding the death stench of fear and shame in our lives. But the only way that we could truly embrace others is because on the cross, Jesus Christ, the King of creation, he opened up his arms wide, wide enough to nail them to a cross so that he could embrace you and call you beloved. That is an identity that can never be threatened because that is an identity that doesn't depend on you or anything you do. Or anything you fail to do, that is an identity that depends on Jesus and what he has done for you. The more that identity takes root in your life, the more it transforms you into somebody who can embrace others and yet without pride or superiority because you know that their stink is nothing compared to your stink. Do you know that? And by the way, we like to think of ourselves as being very virtuous and noble for thinking of that. And even that is evidence of the stink in our lives. Does that make sense? Do we know that our stink is, is the worst stink of all? The only way we can really embrace others without superiority is if we know that and we've let Jesus into the stink of our tombs to set us free. Friends, the more that happens, the more we become people who long, and I mean long, to see everyone in the world embraced in the kingdom of God because we have been changed forever by a savior named Jesus who on the cross, he became the ultimate other so that he could embrace you. Do you see him on the cross doing that for you? I want to encourage you to spend time, much time in your life gazing at Jesus on the cross, doing that for you. It will change you, it'll change our world, and it will do it forever. Would you pray with me? Abba, we praise you today. You are the king. You are the king. You are the king we need. And we confess that that we want to be kings and queens of our own life. We don't want you to be king. We want to perform our magnificence before a watching world. We want to hide all the stink, all the fear and the shame in our lives. But Lord Jesus, you came to set us free from that. And so I pray this morning that you would help us to roll away the stones from our lives and not think of ourselves as so virtuous for doing it. Help us, Lord Jesus, to embrace the desperation, the hiddenness of your cross in our lives and our deep need for you that you would come in and free us, take the poison out of our stink, our fear and our shame and set us free that we might go out into the world and bear double witness to the world that we might bear witness to a world that is deeply skeptical of you and for good reason, but that we might also bear witness to um, our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in their own ways captive to their own stink and shame. Lord, set us all free from the death stench of sin, evil, and death, and send us out into this world as vessels of your love, your kingdom, for we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.